Welcome. You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Nordics, a podcast constructed to enrich our tech community by connecting some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordics region. I am Christopher Asbridge, and I help connect businesses with talented freelancers, and I will be your host. Today, I am joined by Jens, Head of Transaction Banking and Payments at Luna, Michael, a former Senior Engineering Manager at Klarna, now doing his own thing, and Babel, Principal Project Manager at, uh, Product Manager, sorry, at North Mill Bank. Here, we're going to discuss how to create a worldwide payment solution. Now, before we go deeper into this topic, let's do some general introductions. Um, Babel, please introduce yourself. Thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, my name is Babel Poli. Uh... PM uh, of uh, uh, B2B at North Mill Bank. Been here for uh, eight years, I think, eight years in a week. Um, and uh, North Mill Bank, if you don't know it, is a, is a small tech bank uh, based in Stockholm. I've been around since 2006. Um, we just recently uh, acquired a, a cash register company uh, they sell POS's and stuff like that so they were actually now uh, venturing into the B2B space and that's why I'm here. Oh, thank you very much by uh, Babel. Uh, Michael please introduce yourself. Yeah thanks Chris. Um, well uh, as you mentioned formerly of Klona just uh, left back to independent contracting again where I've been, which I've been doing for a decade roughly a little bit more. Uh, except the short stint at Klona for a couple of years. Um, I, as opposed to many others, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I have a degree in informatics, uh, which, well, is close enough. So uh, I'm allowed to manage engineers without them going bananas. So uh, uh, I've been in a, in a number of different lines of business. I've been in defense, automotive, life science, retail, you name it. Uh, and uh, I think I've spent most of the last decade in payments, banking, uh, finance, regulatory finance, stuff like that. Uh, and mostly around the QA and performance engineering, stuff like that. that that's where I've been the last decade. Um, I've done a few interesting stints in setting up companies uh, for, for subsidiaries in, in China, uh, a few other places. Uh, and I've seen and lived through the dot-com bust and boom uh, at one of the old iconic internet companies. Uh, and uh, let's say we're reliving this right now with, uh, with the current market sentiment. So it's, uh, it's interesting times. Okay, thank you very much, Michael. And um, last but not least, at uh, least, Jens. Thank you, Christopher. So, I'm with uh, with Luna, heading up transaction banking and payments, meaning I, I take full responsibility on everything everything related to 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 that area. Naturally, uh, I have a background within both consultancy, mediation and facilitation, but also uh, uh, having a great passion uh, working with uh, bicycles, as I just mentioned to all of you here in this group prior to the call. So I appreciate the invite. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, now we've established the context of each other. Let's move on to the topic in focus, um, how to create a world-class payment solution. As usual, we'll work around the room. I know each of you have brought questions. Um, first of all, we'll start off with Michael. 
Now, Michael, you came with a question saying, when will payment services become a commodity or perhaps are they? And what is required to make them a commodity? Do you mind just expanding and delving a little bit further for us? Yeah, uh, I think it's something we've seen historically uh, in a number of different areas, not just payments or banking services. Uh, I mean, uh, things like uh, open banking basically drive the possibility of anybody to do banking services for anybody else, uh, at least in the markets where we operate and where these things are available. I mean, if we go outside this market, we see uh, many nations where most people don't even have a bank account. How do you do payment services when people don't have a bank account? Uh, how do you provide these services to people when they don't have uh, regular income? Uh, all these things that we take for granted and uh, those are just the precursors. And then on the other end, we see technology driving commoditization. Everything in the end becomes something off the shelf. Very little specialization remains and everybody can do it. When 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 does this happen for payments? Good question. Yeah. Good question. Babel, do you want to jump in there? I'd I'd like like to say at least in, in uh, the regions we are operating in, uh, I'd say they have become a commodity uh, because, as you say, like it's uh, off the shelf. People expect both merchants and 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 customers expect uh, payments to just work. Um, it's not no longer the matter of. Um, thinking about, or, or at least my experience with, with end consumers, they don't care too much about what payment method uh, it, they might do in terms of trust. But in, in general, what they want, it, they want to have is, is a working payment solution. They, they don't even see it as a payment solution. Uh, they're transacting and they w want uh, to achieve whatever they're trying to achieve by paying. Uh, so I'm buying goods online. I don't care if it's uh, Klarna, if it's a card, if it's whatever uh, i just want to pay and i want to be done so in, in that sense i think it's they've already become a commodity but you widen the scope a bit to outside of europe and uh, that might not be the case then so maybe i could i could ship in here also um i believe you both just said it right but it depends on the market because the way that i see it is that that in the nordic market which is where luna plays a role their payment services they are already a commodity that being, you know, more specifically, uh, maybe accounts and, and payments, right? But but absolutely not everywhere in in the world. Uh, moving to to countries uh, in 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 Asia, South America, or Africa, not necessarily not necessarily everywhere. This is uh, a commodity. But what we see right now in the Nordics, at least, uh, and the western parts of of the world, is that that we are developing these payment services. Uh, even more why they already are, are have become uh, a a commodity uh, while moving into to open banking uh, and, and and the stuff uh, around that that area but what i'm even more fascinated about and have been for quite some time is is, is you know specific countries in asia that is, you know, actually also far in front of, of what we're doing and seeing in in many parts of especially uh, Europe, uh, being able to pay already through open banking and then multiple different kinds of checkout experiences already through through the metro uh, and stuff like that, taking smart pictures of QR codes and enabling stuff 
through smart chats, etc., etc. So, so it depends on on where we are. But we see this development going very fast uh, with with some 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 countries significantly in, in the forefront of it. And that is absolutely not necessarily the country uh, in which I live in. Yeah, uh, that's a, like very interesting. Yes, because when like now thinking about the this discussion we've had here, um, one realization is in in the Nordics or or broader in Europe, we're talking about like open banking as probably the next wave of things, but that's only building on top of what already exists. While these other, uh, if we take Asia for an example, they just uh, circumvent that, and people can pay in different ways, not like not dependent on what what underlying infrastructure already is there. Um, and that's that's yeah, that's true innovation uh, for me at least. And maybe even some of the countries that 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 where where payments not necessarily have become a commodity yet, they will maybe you know. Uh, suddenly you know skip the queue if you will and bring out solutions that 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 will then also in speaking about innovation overtake where we are uh, have been placed uh, in the nordics at least right now so so they would jump that and move straight into things that are much more modern and innovative and stuff that we should be very much inspired by while speaking about payment development michael what are your thoughts on this yeah there's uh I think I agree with uh, both of my uh, co-panelists here, uh, or podcast pod members. Uh, we have basically commoditized the service of payment in, in sort of Western Europe uh, and maybe some other countries. But I also see a lot of very, very interesting developments in uh, with what parts of Africa, for example, where most people actually, Sub-Saharan Africa, people don't have bank accounts in general. They don't have monthly incomes. They don't have credit, <laughs> nothing. And they still need to pay for stuff. And cell phones seem to be the only commodity that's actually available uh, in many areas, and that's what they use. Uh, there's all sorts of innovation going on there on establishing payment methods that we would never think of here because that's not something we do. So I see a lot of very, very interesting innovation coming out of there from market players that would never think of becoming a financial institute or a bank or anything like that here because here it's insanely regulated. I'm not saying it's not regulated in other countries, but Basel 3 is 40,000 pages of paperwork. So yeah. There's a lot of uh, overhead of becoming a financial institute in our markets. Jens Babel, do you have any more input there? Yeah, my, my only thought is is this like the Africa example. I the the name's lost for me, but there's a, a Swedish company doing or partly Swedish company doing micro insurances in in Africa. I guess that's one of the um, products you're thinking of, Michael, when saying like they use their they've got their phone basically as a commodity. And and for me, I I guess like they're starting with that product, and then just um, like part of part of that product to success is being able to take payment through their um, uh, balance on their on their phone. So, yeah, like it's an interesting thought to see that you develop products and then realize I, I require it requires payments because for me, 
historically, like payments has not been a thing before actually starting working with payments, right? It's just something, uh, it's a transaction, it just happens. But then you realize, okay, we can do it this way instead, which is quite interesting with the leap in, in, in that microinsurance company, at least, providing a, a great service for, for people who, who can't afford uh, insurance really otherwise. Any, any input there, Michael? No, I just uh, find it interesting. Interesting things happen everywhere, not just in the, uh, how should we say, very hyped market of the Nordics where we are right now, where, where everybody talks about payments. And uh, it's like the Nordics, the US and a few other places and everybody's like all in. Okay, so overall, obviously, the little debate we've had there, does that finish off or polish off your sort of question that you wanted to, wanted to hear? Yeah, to me, to me, that's very much a great, great uh, comments and insight. I, I really like the thoughts here. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. So what we'll do now is we'll move on to the next person. Um, and Babel, we'll, we'll come to you next. Now, you, you approached me with a question saying, which metrics are crucial to keep track of when building and managing a world-class payment solution and why? What's your, your team's Nordic star metric? Can you sort of elaborate a little bit more for me, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, so for me, uh, not only in product management or product development, but kind of any part of any business, uh, you should try to be as data-driven as you can. And, and just the classic saying of what gets measured gets made. Uh, and that kind of helps focus the team's attention and energy on, on the same thing. Um, and the reason I asked this question is I'm, I'm just interested in knowing like what, what kind of metrics uh, are crucial to keep track of, like if we call them health metrics or um, <clears throat> just KPIs. And then uh, I've tried a couple of times working with a North Star metric, like the, the top one, basically the most important one for us to, to, to focus on and putting that in the context of payments uh, is interesting to, to, to think about. Yeah. Okay, Jens, what are your thoughts there? I think um, metrics could depend on your customer base, if you will, whether you are serving businesses or consumers or some, someone uh, in between the two, uh, whether it's peer-to-peer -peer solutions or checkout solutions or whatever it is. But, 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 but when I'm hearing your question, I believe that maybe especially rate to completion, if I had to be very specific, if, I, if you forced me right, maybe rate to completion, speed and user experience, those parts are nat naturally key, but I would actually prefer to, prefer to start somewhere else, you know, and, and zoom into, you know, what customer need are we actually solving here? Because if we are solving a specific customer need, then we would see these, uh, uh, these metrics and many more uh, to be completed. Very nice, very nice indeed. Um, who wants to jump in there? I, I have an, uh, 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 on the lines of thought that the bubble mentioned there that about uh, what you measure is what gets made. Uh, you, re for example, what we have been measuring a lot is uh, one of our goals was to drive incidents down to zero. But we, we, we uh, or at least uh, any, anything related to my area of where we were working, like performance and reliability related incidents should be as close to zero as possible. That's the direction, right? Uh, but that's not a metric we can impact. That's an outcome of something else, right? So 
try to find metrics that you can actually move. Not just, uh, I mean, there's one bottom metric that kills every other metric, and that's how much money are we making on the bottom line, right? But that's not a meaningful metric if you actually want to change things. So getting metrics that you can actually move by what you impacted it and do, I think that's uh, really, really important. And we had to come up with uh, a number of other metrics to, to sort of move the, the amount of incidents that happen that depend on the area we're working on. So uh, finding metrics that you can impact, that, that's really important, uh, I think. That, that doesn't give me a North Star metric, but that at least gives me uh, an idea of how to work the metrics to get meaningful metrics. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like some of them you just need to keep track of to know if things are going right or wrong. And the other ones are absolutely the ones that you should try to move. Um, I, uh, I also agree with what Yaz was saying in, in terms of like, it absolutely depends, uh, like who, who who's your uh, customer or consumer of your uh, product. Uh, I was I was away uh, from North Mill for, for about six months uh, at a, a British company called Free Trade. And there I was uh, actually a, a consumer of payment services, right? So. Um, our our goal was to, for my team, ensure that our customers could could uh, top up their investment accounts uh, over there. Uh, so one of what we tried to implement was like a no stock metric, which was time to money, because it was super important for for the the business uh, to have customers on board and then quickly have money available to start investing. Uh, so time to money was kind of an overarching thing where we could impact in in different ways like depending on payment solution, depending on uh, our systems, uh, ingesting those payment uh, payments and, and stuff like that. So it absolutely depends on, on who you're building for. And I can see right now for, from uh, the merchants we're working with, it's uh, cash flow is very important to them. So uh, time to settlement or, or time to cash or something similar to that is, is very important right now. And then we have the, I would say like the, Health metrics of you know conversion rate, fraud rate, chargeback rate, depending on well, which area of the business you're on. I know from discussing with uh, friends at Klarna at one point in time, like the only thing that was being talked about was uh, I guess success rate uh, of the payment. So like every payment needs to go through. Um, yeah, so it depends who you're building it for. Yeah, well, consumer markets are a bit special. It's like uh, you mentioned early on uh, at some point, it, it just has to work. Uh, and when you look at very large numbers of aggregates and you have like, yeah, we have uh, a small parts of a percentage of the payments out there in the fringe, they actually fail for whatever reason. And it's like, yeah, that's acceptable because we have so many that work. Well, it's absolutely not acceptable for the parts of a percentage where they actually fail. That's the worst possible outcome for them. So uh, focusing on the right things, right, when the metrics show you something, it's uh, it, it quickly becomes a, a, a tale of uh, the uh, downed uh, British uh, fighter planes during the Second World War, where the ones that came back, they had lots of holes in them, and they thought, yeah, great, lots of holes, let's, uh, let's reinforce them. Uh, well, that's a bad idea because they just came back with a lot of holes. Let's find the ones that didn't come back and see where they got holes. So look at the right metrics from the right angle. 
then you know what to do. That is one of the but oldest I, I think sayings. You, uh, sorry, Christopher. Sorry, yeah. Uh, Go on. But, but, but I believe, Michael, you touched upon something very important uh, just before uh, regarding the steer on how to set good metrics. Because it's important and, and it's impossible to say, well, these five metrics are the most important ones. But what's important is to have a good steer on how to set good metrics and a clear guidance on, on what to focus on, right? And, and to me, essentially, it's about solving these customer needs, right? Because if you find that and you address those and you speak to those customers, then it becomes suddenly quite easy to see, okay, hey, what's, what's the most important? Which metrics should be most, most important for me? Whether that will be rate completion, uptown, or uptime or whatever it would be, right? It depends. But they're still on how to set good metrics. I think that's a good point. Bible Jeremy, other thoughts there? No, I really appreciate the, the guy's uh, point of view. Very, very valuable and insightful. Uh, and I think like the things mentioned here are, are actually things that a lot of a lot of teams or companies uh, they they kind of skip skip parts of it, uh, especially what Jan says here, like the steer on, on, on which metrics to, to work on. Um, but uh, like the positive thing is I'm seeing more and more at least that people are actually uh, looking at metrics, which is a good start, right? You have something, uh, you're not there yet, but you have something, uh, rather than, uh, just building a great product thinking it's fantastic and then wondering why no one's buying it. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks. Okay. Does anyone else have any other thoughts on this topic right before we move on? Guess I'm out of silence? No. <laughs> okay, not a problem. And last but not least, um, Jens, we'll come to you. Um, you came to me with a thing, say, a question saying, which parameters are the most important while speaking about world-class payment solutions? Now, do you mind if you uh, explain a little bit more for us? So it's, it's extremely closely related to what we just spoke about, right? Because it's about, you know, the, the topic for this presentation about developing world-class payment solutions while developing those, what is super, which are super important, important parameters to take into consideration while building this solution, uh, whatever customer that would be. But it's so closely related to, to metrics. So there's actually, there's actually not much more to, to, to go with here, but what we could zoom into, at least from, from my point of view is while we are, and I'm keen to hear some examples from, from you guys, right? While then developing a new kind of a world-class payment solution to consumers, what have you seen previously as the parameters of, uh, of success? If we were to mention just a few things, so not solid metrics, but, but some parameters that would that would lead to success while building. Who would like to go first? Michael? Yeah, uh, while building, um, I, I, I would say uh, um, to market, uh, go to market, don't wait, go to market very, 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 very fast. And I mean, like, you can, you can just ignore the difference between bleeding edge and leading edge. Just go bleed. So to market as soon as possible. That that's sort of the one uh, because the market seems to be have a much higher tolerance for 
force quality services than I have, but then quality services is my profession, so I should have a lower tolerance. But uh, it, it, two markets seems to be a, a, a much more important parameter when building uh, services. So, so instead of holding a bit back and securing, securing that you then fine tune the product, it's all about bringing it out to to the customers and gain and gain some knowledge. Is that what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I was going to go for uh, actually uh, trying to uh, doing a proper discovery and, and talking to to the at least a hypothetical target 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 consumer. If you're building something completely new that's not there, it might be hard. But at least you you must have had like a hypothesis in terms of what problem you're solving and for who. Uh, so trying to talk to them and understanding uh, what what it is that you need to solve for them, and then as quickly as possible try that out. Because I've from experience here and hearing from others as well, like you know the uh, you get in uh, like you get a, a bit of heat internally if you're you're putting something out there that's not the highest quality. Uh, there is like internal embarrassment is like, aren't we better than this as a company? And I, I, I think like to those people, you need to say, no, um, we're not yet, uh, but we're going to be, uh, because uh, otherwise you're just wasting your time uh, believing that you're building something that people will use and then you'll figure out in the end uh, that it wasn't the right thing. It's kind of like classical stuff, uh, I'd say, but yeah, super important. And one other thing is try to try to synthesize what what's out there. So Maybe you won't have to reinvent the wheel. Maybe there is new technology. Um, so involve your engineers absolutely uh, early on in in the like when looking at the hypothesis and the problem uh, to see like maybe there's a different way of solving this uh, that you as a leader or product manager or the one inventing this product might not be aware of. What are your thoughts there, Jens? Well, I very much agree with the, with the two two gentlemen. Um, that's also my my thoughts around it to quickly gain some experience. But of course, before you move into a development phase, you need to have clarified, you know, this very specific problem space. Um, but it's always interesting, right? Whether you should bring out a product that is not 100% ready, uh, but 90% 90, 90 ready simply to gain experience and, and knowledge uh, from the launch where it's okay then saying that it's okay sometimes uh, that it fails because because you know you cannot develop a solution in one go you need to develop, develop multiple before you hit the the specific and, and very right one that would you know crush the market and disrupt the full market right uh, it's, it's it's a bit ignorant to believe that that you can do that in one go so i, I I, I, I totally adhere to that. Okay. Anyone got any other further input there? Well, just a small thing. Uh, I think Bob touched on it. Uh, you might not have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, we have. Uh, I'm not going to name them because they're listed. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but the, there's a very big company in Germany that made their entire business of not inventing anything. They're just copying what other p companies have done. And they're very successful. And, and when it comes to things that are commoditized, especially, and more and more comes off the shelf, what, then what am I doing? Should I actually need to build anything? Or can I just uh, 
should I just put my brand on it or get a market niche or do I want, should I use that as a base to actually move faster on a specific area? So a lot of the times you actually, you can copy, you don't need to, to reinvent or, or build from scratch or uh, working with engineers and love to work with engineers. And I also go into the same trap of uh, having to build everything uh, because it's super unique. Uh, I, I sometimes have to take a step back and know oh, that's not really necessary. I, I agree, Michael. You know, payments has, has, has existed, you know, for, for years and years, and there are tons of companies out there, not only uh, in the UK and in the Nordics, but also everywhere else in the world. So for us to first take a look at what's out there and, and maybe simply just bring that to, to a new market that could also disrupt uh, a market where, where it hasn't been placed yet. Uh, I, I agree. It's a very, very tough market and it is very, very tough to come up with a, with a very, very new uh, way of, uh, of paying. So, so I agree. Well, then I'll, I'll throw a question in there. Obviously, this is trying to think of a new way of paying. What do you believe that's going to be from your experience and speculation? So, as I see it, you know, um, there has been a trend at least uh, for now that Michael touched upon uh, in the very beginning of the conversation that, that the rails are possibly changing, right? Uh, we see what MasterCard and Visa is focusing on. We see the acquisitions that they are doing. Uh, there are many arrows at this point there that are pointing towards open banking at least to secure that that you could leverage all the connections uh, through one place but but whether that's the new thing I, I I could know and and I don't dare to say it but but it's just the fact that 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 many ones are, are developing and that's that's an area with with a, with a large focus right now but but what is the next big thing? Would I know? You know, uh, I would have been uh, <laughs> a crazy, cool person, but 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 I simply don't. Okay, very nice. And do you believe over the next, say, ten years, that it is going to be the end of traditional banks, and that sort of neo fintech companies are going to be the new rage? No clue. No clue. That was a good question to ask, though, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think I, we're going to see some, bit... see some consolidation at least. Lots of the payment providers will be uh, eaten by other payment providers or banks, or we see we also see the reverse: uh, big banks selling off their payment uh, business uh, and uh, just staying to their normal banking. We see a lot of movement uh, in, in many different directions at the same time. But in ten years, definitely consolidation. Thank you very much. Thanks for the input. Now, so Jens, I know we sort of went off topic there from your question. Has your question sort of been answered there for you? Yes, but but to speak on your comment there, Michael, I'm I'm not even sure that we will see consolidation, uh, because I also believe that many parties will actually begin to accept to become the secondary bank or the third bank or the fourth bank. You know, earlier on, people were to stick with only one bank throughout their, their full life, the same bank probably as, uh, as their grandparents. But but right now, the trend that we're seeing, right, is that 
it's actually okay to have more than one bank suddenly. We could have two or three. And then on top of that, we could also engage with, with other types of financial technology companies. So whether we'll see consolidation or not, I'm, I'm also I'm also actually a bit uncertain of that. Yeah, I uh, I think also the, like relating this a bit to the, like the question that uh, Chris asked uh, in terms of like uh, will the neo banks and tech banks eat up uh, the whole cake for the for the incumbent banks? I, this question has been asked I think for like fifteen years now, um, and it's super hard to answer. But I, I'm I'm more on Jens's line here. Like we could. You can see like in, in, in different types of services, Tink as an example, right? Started off as a B2C and then uh, had more success in, in doing B2B uh, because it wasn't as a, like strong enough standalone consumer product, but as part of a banking service, uh, it was great apparently. Uh, and then uh, then moving on into to like uh, open banking and, and more on the payment side of it. Uh, so it's, it's quite hard to, to say, but I would think, given the current climate, that we will see potentially uh, consolidation, but maybe even more like uh, a lot of companies uh, dying off, basically, because it's it's a tough climate now. And, and you need to be resilient. Uh, you need to have a good enough product and you need to have money. And money is hard right now. Yeah. Okay, Chops, then we'll, we'll leave it there. Um... This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I'll take this opportunity to thank uh, Jens and Michael and Babel. Thank you so much uh, for providing your insights on such an interesting topic. And thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you guys very soon.